0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content.
1: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
0: Today my guest on Off the Shelf is a keen observer and participant in the federal marketplace, Larry Allen of... Ellen Federal Business Partners is on the show. Larry, welcome.
2: Roger, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. By the way, you get great new digs here. Uh, plenty of room to spread out.
0: Absolutely, it's a it's a gorgeous new stu- uh, set of studios. Um, I'm loving it. So, um, thank you for the compliment. I'll pass. <laughs> I'll make sure that gets passed on to the real people in charge. So, um, so Larry, um, you know, we're going to go over a number of issues today with regard to. What's going on in the procurement system? And uh, first one I wanted to you know talk about a little bit was is the uh, recent category management memorandum that came out from OMB. It's about um, I think been out for a little over a week and a half, uh, approximately, and it re- rescinds a couple other memos, a particular strategic sourcing memo. Um, but uh, what's it, what's what what do we take away from it, Larry?
2: Well, Roger, I think there are a couple of takeaways from this memo. The formal title, Making Smarter Use of Common Contract Solutions and Practices, came out March 20th from OMB, as you said. And in the time we've had to look at it, I think there really is uh, the good and the bad here in this memo, at least from my perspective. Not the good,
0: the bad, and ugly? No? Uh, I tried oh, to say that right.
2: there's ugly, but you know, yeah. there's not in, <laughs> un, the unworkable, maybe. Right. <laughs> uh, the good, uh, or at least the what was to be expected, Roger, is additional guidance, additional encouragement to federal agencies to make use of best-in-class contracts. What OMB is really trying to do here is reduce duplication and acquisition reduce the government's acquisition overhead with the idea that that's going to reduce both the costs of operating duplicative organizations and ultimately reduce the prices paid on contracts that are in place and used by various government agencies. And in the memo, OMB sets up really four tiers, although one of them is called Tier Zero. Uh, I guess they have been on too many elevators in Europe lately. Okay. <laughs> uh, at, uh, tier zero is online spending. That's the spending that agencies make that's not necessarily on a contract or not really in line with overall uh, p- purchasing models. It's decentralized. Uh, tier one. Sort of open,
0: just op- kind of open market. Open market, market yeah.
2: micro-purchase threshold buys, things of that nature. Uh, tier one is spending that's managed at the agency level. Uh, supporting mandatory use but not using either government-wide contracts or not using best-in-class contracts. And moving up to Tier 2, the second highest tier is spend that's managed at the government-wide level or through multiple agency agreements. So that's where OMB really wants to start driving things because they like to be able to um, both understand what agencies are spending money on and to uh, really uh, have some say in how agencies are spending those dollars, really. And Tier 3 is spending managed at the government-wide level with acquisitions being made through best-in-class contracts. And best-in-class contracts, in terms of what constitutes a best-in-class contract, Roger, this memo really doesn't change any of the criteria. I think we can have a good discussion about whether or not the existing criteria of what constitutes best-in-class is really a a working definition. Uh, But this memo doesn't address that. Rather, it says, look, we, OMB, have identified best-in-class contracts, and we expect you, the federal agencies, to use those uh, in many situations, in most situations, uh, realizing that it may not make sense in all of them. So – that's kind of – I'm not sure people say that that's the good, but it's certainly not unexpected. It takes the existing guidance and takes it one step further, saying we really want you to have spend under management as a federal agency. You have to analyze your spending. You shouldn't just go out and use your purchase card for things. Uh, impulse buys, year-end buys. If you're going to make a year-end buy, it ought to be with uh, in the guidelines – Outlined here and within the guidelines of your own agency's needs and policies.
0: Right. So it is a good thing if, to the extent you're talking about using pre-existing contract vehicles, reducing contract unnecessary contract duplication. Um, you know, they can have can reduce you know cycle times, prepalt times, all that kind of good stuff. So that's sort of the good. What 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 would be the bad, Larry?
2: Well, the bad, Roger, and kind of one of the things that was a surprise to me is that. The memo mandates that agencies populate their spending information on a government-wide prices paid database that would be part of the acquisition gateway. And let me hasten to add that as a taxpayer and somebody who's been involved in government acquisition throughout their professional career, I'm in favor of the government spending money wisely, whether it's my money or your money or somebody else's. However, that's really not what the prices paid database, Roger, is going to be able to do in in large part. The government, for a long time now, has been a net buyer of services. And they spend an awful lot of time talking about buying solutions, uh, which, if you think about it, makes sense. The government spends a lot of money on services. Uh, lately in the IT realm, for example, they don't want to buy things. They want to buy the services of those right. things. And all of that lends itself to complex, multifaceted acquisitions, the type of acquisitions that really do have lots of moving parts and variables uh, that depend on size, timing, uh, the type of contract it is, the location, a whole group of things that don't necessarily lend themselves to -to apples-to-apples analyses. And yet, by requiring agencies to populate pricing information on a Prices-Paid Database, that's exactly what they're trying to do. It's an attempt to essentially commoditize non-commoditizable acquisitions. And I think that, Roger, my concern is that a lot of false, a lot of misleading, a lot of incomplete information is going to be populated on that Prices-Paid Database. It's going to lead to a lot of confusion among the government's acquisition workforce And it's going to lead to contractors having to invest time and effort to explain the differences in pricing for past projects uh, with what they're bidding on today. They may or may not be the same thing, even though on the face of it, it might look sort of similar, but there can be a whole host of factors that make the pricing different. So I'm not a big fan of the prices paid database, not because I don't think we should have an idea of what the government spends its money on. It should, but because I think a price is paid database is going to lead to a lot of misleading information, a lot of confusion, and ultimately it's going to lengthen uh, procurement acquisition lead times and uh, add cost uh, to the overhead, which is the opposite of what the rest of the memo is trying to do.
0: Right. Well, you know, just to pick up on that a little bit, Larry, even in the area of what we, what people would categorize as commodities, there's so much information that would be, have to be layered into this to make the pricing even relevant for someone looking at it to understand the context, like the quantity that was purchased. When was it purchased? Over time, in the commodity world, pricing fundamentally changes and changes pretty rapidly. You can see that in office supplies in particular and the lag time that GSA has with regard to Executing modifications and dealing with price changes that are driven by raw materials of that sort of thing. Um, you could e- you even have to get into the point where you're specifically identifying the particular thing you're buying. But if you're buying a hammer. Maybe it's a hammer with a plywood like handle as opposed to titanium. Like how are you? You know the, how much information is going to be enough to even make it something that somebody could decipher or draw any conclusions. Out of I just I just don't see it, and again it's sort of past tense, right? At the end of the day, and you know, right? And uh, uh, you know, a wise man once told me um, that you know the thing that drives procurement and and makes the fundamental difference is the requirements, like how you articulate the requirements, not this past history about the pricing. That's a data point. Um, But you can spend a lot of money to create this data point that's increasingly less relevant as you do your own procurement.
2: Right. And the simple fact of the matter is that I think at its core, Roger, you're absolutely right about the commodity part of it. Uh, But another factor would be there's a presumption, I think, that the prices uh, populated on the prices paid database – would automatically be better than an agency could obtain in real time for its own needs. Exactly. Need. Yeah. And that's really just not the case. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. A classic example in a related field. I remember when uh, GSA was rolling out the first Alliant program, and the fifty percent subcontracting initiative came out as the goal, and the government's uh, government's own small business goal is 23% of prime contracts. So I thought, wow, 50%, the companies that are going to bid on a line are going to be really upset with that. And so I called up up and talked to a couple of them. They said, no, 50%, pish, we're doing 45% on the precursor contracts today. 50% is not going to be a stretch for us. It's the same type of logic. Let's say that GSA had set 23% as the goal, figuring that that was the achievable benchmark. Well, it would have given away 27% of opportunities for small business. It's the same type of thing with the prices paid database, Roger. You could be assuming that the price that you're looking at is going to be the the discounted price, when in reality, there may be market factors out there that you don't know about that would cause your pricing to be lower. Absolutely. Ironically, if you asked a company to meet the Price that it was on the prices paid database, you could end up paying more More. than you needed to.
0: Exactly. So, Larry, we're already up on the first break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue talking about category management. I'd like to get your thoughts on the terminology best in class. I'd also like to get your thoughts on the idea of category management versus the e-commerce platform, the philosophical differences there. Uh, My guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners. And we're talking, first segment, we talked a lot about category management. I think we'll continue that conversation, Larry, talk e-commerce, talk some schedules modernization. You know, we're going to hit all the highlights today. So category management, though, the one and one thing that continues to trouble me, and I think a lot of people about the whole approach being taken here, the goals are – are I can't quibble with the idea of reducing unnecessary contract duplication, leveraging what you already have in terms of contracts in place, but this, this – the mechanism or the, the process, the idea of best-in-class contracts That terminology, still, I scratch my head at it. And also the the criteria underlying what is best in class versus what is not best in class. Your
2: thoughts? Well, Roger, I kind of share your thoughts. It's a big federal government out there with multiple missions across many different agencies. Any definition of what constitutes best on such a wide platform, I think, is automatically open to a degree of subjectivity. What's best for... The Army, for example, may not have any relevance or much relevance at all for the Department of Agriculture. Uh, and who decides? Is the Army deciding that this is best in class for us? Is agriculture deciding that this is best in class for us? In uh, point of fact, it, it's really OMB uh, with a large amount of help from GSA. And not to say that those uh, people aren't smart and they're not qualified to make good acquisition decisions. They are. They're very smart people. Uh, However, I think it's hard to make a determination of what constitutes best if you're so far away from the front lines of acquisition for an individual agency that you really only have a concept of what their mission is. And then what are the factors that go into best? Is it pricing? Is that what we're after? Well, all right. If it's pricing, then why don't we all drive all all around in uh, cars that reflect a low price, technically acceptable vehicle uh, that's on the market today, uh,
0: like the old Yugo or something. Yeah, it's like that. exactly. I'm really dating myself, right? Now.
2: No, it's, it's my favorite analogy. The government would be driving off in a fleet of Yugos. Uh, it's that. It's that. It's that type of logic. Uh, but what else do we get in? And if it's not price, then every different customer, I think Roger, is going to have some trade-off between. What constitutes best value for them? Is it speed of delivery? Is it quality? Is it some other factor? Uh, There may be somebody who says, you know, I need to pay a little bit more because I'm out at the end of a 10,000-mile supply line, and I can't uh, afford to just have this break and order one from Amazon because they don't deliver here, (laughs) period. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, So you got to think about that. So, when you and I don't think price is the right answer either, obviously, I think that you know sometimes the government does well for low pricing, but there are a host of times when low price today does not actually reflect the government's lowest overall cost alternative. If we're talking SECA among other things. Uh, so uh, I've got some issues with what constitutes best, how do you define it? Uh, how do you define it across such a wide bandwidth that is federal agency acquisition? Uh, I think there's a better term or another term that we ought to use. Yeah. Well, it seems
0: to me like and a, a lot of the, the criteria, whether it's uh, a vehicle that's developed through an interagency group or that it, you report the transactional data or um, they're all sort of process driven as opposed to results driven to your, I mean, I think that's, something that i hear from industry all the time and the other aspect of it that i'd be interested in your thoughts about the term best in class um is this idea of picking winners and losers i mean you get you, in the sense that if i'm a small business and i've invested in a gsa schedule but gsa schedules are not best in class which i you know didn't I, the, the, how does that happen um so they're not best in class And I've invested in that vehicle. And then an agency decides I'm going to use a different contract vehicle. I'm not on that one. Um, You know, or, um, you know, or the the concept that, you know, people select best in class to do work where there may not be as competitive as other vehicles. Like EIS is a perfect example. We're seeing examples where call center services, which is an optional service on EIS, um are going to EIS because it's identified as a BIC. Well, you know, the the issue that many in industry had with uh, EIS is it had a very narrow point of entry. You had to be a telecom contract because those were mandatory. But then they offered all these optional services. And the issue there is that you're not getting the best-in-class call center-type contractors to perform that work because they're not prime contractors on
2: that vehicle. Well, that's exactly right, Roger. And the other thing is that uh, you're going to have a hard time meeting your small business goals by using the EIS contracts. I don't think there are very many small no, business primes nine, yeah. on on the EIS contract. So if you're looking for a best-in-class call center solution from a small business, well, you're not going to be able to really use EIS uh, for that. But And I think that's part of the larger point here. Look, in our first segment, we were talking a little bit about – uh, the May 20th uh, OMB memo, Making Smarter Use of Common Contract Solutions, and talking about driving agency best-in-class behaviors. One of the outcomes of this that I know industry is concerned about is that what we're talking about here is really shrinking the supplier base in government. And while there's a discussion in the memo about making sure you're using small businesses and other socioeconomically disadvantaged categories of business. Uh, Fundamentally, if you're talking about putting an emphasis on a certain uh, bandwidth of contracts uh, with certain identifiable players on it, what you're really talking about is that if you're not one of the companies that's on one of those, you may have a tough time doing business with the government. And look, one of the great things about the schedules program is that it's perpetually open. I can get a apply to get on schedule today. If rather an agency is using EIS, I can't apply to get on EIS because it's closed. Right. I'm and, gonna have and, to f- and
0: to get on it anyway at the very beginning was such a narrow point of entry. Right. That, you know, that that's a great point that, that the idea of expanding opportunity, you know, if that's a piece of the puzzle, then the schedules are an appropriate place. Um, you know, other aspects, buying smarter and sort of leveraging requirements, which is a commercial best practice, frankly, you know, private companies try to leverage requirements and create discipline amongst their buyers to use those vehicles. So i like to get your thoughts like the e-commerce platform versus category management. They, they seem in opposite.
2: Well, I think they seem in opposite Roger, because generally they are uh, the e-commerce uh, GSA e-commerce platform project that uh, they're working on currently. In fact, they just sent their uh, memo to Congress on their progress on where they are. It uh, was mandated by Congress, mandated by the genesis from the Armed Services Committee in the House uh, to for the government to make small buys more easily and to use commercial platforms which are not necessarily government well, they're not today. The legislation contemplates that they would be government contractors, but they're largely not today, the platform providers. And then if you look at the memo, if you look at the category management, they're talking about don't use or make minimal use of so-called tier zero uh, vehicles that are non-aligned with agency spending goals that don't have the type of prices paid information on them that we might want. There's not an assurance that you're getting a fair and reasonable price. They would be the – the e-commerce buys would be the lowest class, least preferred type of buy uh, identified by OMB under its category management memo. And yet GSA is uh, spending a tremendous amount of time, to be fair, at the mandate of Congress – to look at setting up contracts with a number of e-commerce providers uh, with the goal of making it easier for agencies to make tier zero acquisitions.
0: Sure, sure. <laughs> so, Larry, just a, a wild thought. We, you know And I don't know if it makes sense or not, but why not, you know, GSA could just move on from this and just create a schedule line item for e-commerce uh, services and open it up to anybody who would want to submit a proposal for it. And like you know, there's other internet based services that are on schedule right now. Um, you know, they could just put that in place and boom, they've they're they're on their way, one way or the other, but at least it'd be like you'd have a contract for it, you could set some terms and conditions and you'd deal with it and everybody'd be on the same sort of level playing field.
2: Right. And there would be some Uh, assurance or some comfort level, Roger, that the prices that would be paid under that because they're part of a government contract might have some degree of fair and reasonableness to them. Uh, The idea that somebody somewhere would have looked at the price rather than just say, oh, it's available here and with two clicks I can get it tomorrow, uh, which is kind of the the issue with the commercial platforms. I think that's a valid point. The other point that I think is, look – When Congress passed the e-commerce portal initiative, what they were really trying to do is make it easier for agencies to make small-dollar-volume purchases than could be done now through uh, government-sponsored e-commerce platforms like GSA Advantage.
0: Right right at that point, we'll pick up your thought when we come back, Larry. We're already up on the break. (laughs) Uh, My guest today is Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron. Uh, You're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners. We're talking. We've been talking a lot about category management, uh, and uh, we've kind of tried to shift the conversation. You, you were, Larry, when we took had to take the break. You were talking about. E-commerce, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about what the government has in place, perhaps, and GSA Advantage.
2: That's right, Roger. I think what Congress was really trying to do when it passed the e-commerce provision for GSA was to make it easier for federal agencies to use e-commerce portals. Some recognition and nod to the fact that while Advantage is a great portal, it was a great portal in 1995 – And uh, it's getting up there. One of the things I would say, if you want to be consistent with the OMB category management memo, if you want to be consistent with spend under management and ensure that you're doing price reasonableness, don't do away with GSA Advantage, but outsource the management of of GSA Advantage to a commercial portal. Look, this is entirely consistent with what the government's doing with data centers. Roger, you and I have talked to and heard a number of agency CIOs speak over the last year or so, saying we're not going to, as a government, invest any more in data farms. We're going to have data stored, but we're going to rely on contractor-managed data storage facilities, whether they're off-premise or in the cloud, depending on the agency. But the idea is the government doesn't have the bandwidth or the technical expertise or the money to keep creating new data farms. It's the same thing with e-commerce. Government, in this case GSA, doesn't have the money or the bandwidth to pour the resources into making GSA Advantage competitive with commercial e-commerce platforms, and frankly that's not really GSA's business. What they ought to do is take a look at outsourcing the management of Advantage to a contractor Get the advantages that Congress intended there to be for using a commercial platform but still get the insurance that they're getting a good price that they're getting from buying through a schedule or one of GSA's global contracts.
0: Right. I think you're onto to something there, Larry, because they're, they're, at a certain point here, they're going to have to make a decision. Do we keep putting more money into the current platform, which to your point – is goes back to the mid to late nineties. It's, right. uh, it's it's it was to GSA's credit, cutting edge. It hadn't been done before. This electronic, essentially, catalog of all the products and services. Um, and, but it's that that age. You know, uh, you know, start the wear and tear. The guts of the system. Is it time to you know move to you know to a twenty first century you know platform you know, for customer-facing and contractor-facing engagement. Um, And I think, you know, I think perhaps we'll see something that this year because they're working – GSA is also working on schedules modernization. Modern – I can't even get it out. I can't even say it. It's it's, it's got me so excited. Schedules modernization. So from your perspective, what is that? What do you see?
2: Well, Roger, so far what I see I think are some reasons to be cautiously optimistic. Look – You and I both know that this is not the first time that GSA has sought to modernize the schedules program, but other modernization efforts have fallen short for a variety of reasons, a lot of them having to do with internal buy-in within different customer bases inside GSA. Right,
0: the parochialism, right.
2: Right. Uh, So I think that uh, looking at what GSA is trying to do now, the ultimate goal is to reduce the number of schedules down to one Schedule contract, the schedule. And inside that, there yeah, would be, the,
0: as we heard, the multiple award
2: schedule. The multiple award schedule, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Uh, and inside that, there would be obviously subcategories, more or less broken down by NAICS code, North American Industrial Codes, uh, more or less, because I think GSA is reserving the right to specialize some of those and add additional descriptors uh, to make sure that. Uh, schedule buyers can find what they're looking for, which is a a good goal. Uh, Right now, Roger, GSA says that it anticipates coming out with a host of new terms and conditions, which would kind of be the midpoint of their schedule's modernization effort. And those terms and conditions uh, could come out uh, for comment uh, by the public in June, so people can look for that right around the corner, with the idea being that Uh, They would be ready to go. The new terms and conditions would be ready to go for new offers in uh, the new fiscal year and that a mass modification would go out to all existing contractors in January of 2020. Uh, And the idea would be to standardize on sets of terms and conditions. Uh, GSA Advantage – GSA, rather, has said – that they believe that there's 80 to 85% commonality across all scheduled contracts for, in terms of terms and conditions now. that would probably like to get that up well above 90%, I would think, and that's part of what this initiative uh, would do. Uh, and that would be – then everybody would have a more common set of terms and conditions uh, for their contract, which would uh, – theory goes make it easier for contractors to manage the contracts, make it easier for GSA to manage the contracts, make it more transparent for buyers to buy from the contracts. And then the third phase, uh, which uh, they're planning but nowhere near uh, ready to do, would be to consolidate schedule contracts. If you're a company that has five, six, or seven GSA schedules today – Eventually, what they'd like you to do is get down to one where you could have all of the components of your existing contracts but under one master agreement. Sure.
0: So um, you, I think you t- started to touch on what are some of the perceived or potential benefits, I guess, maybe potential. So in your view, what are the, you know, what are the biggest benefits of moving to a, the multiple ward schedule?
2: Well, I think properly implemented, Roger, uh, there'll be some less ambiguity. From a, If you're a GSA Schedule Contract Manager inside of a company, uh, you'll have greater uh, understanding of what it is your company's responsible for, and presumably that will make it easier to manage to those responsibilities. Uh, also, uh, you don't have to, if you're a government customer, be an expert in GSA's special item number taxonomy, something which is unique to the schedules program. Um, You have to have some familiarity with NAICS codes, but a lot of people in government acquisition really already do, particularly uh, if you've ever done or contemplated a small business set aside. Those are all NAICS code-based. So the idea would be to replace some of the arcana of schedule contracts with terms and conditions that are more familiar to both contractors and buyers. Uh, and the idea would also to be lower, lowering the overhead and to make more flexible use of GSA's acquisition workforce. Uh, I'm not saying you do away with specialization, but what I would say is if you've got greater commonality, theoretically that would make it easier to manage contracts and things like modifications, which would better even out the workload across the program. By the way, Roger, I do think there's potential downfalls to that as well.
0: Right. Well, yeah, the consistency, if it can foster a greater consistency, <laughs> that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the position that is being made consistent, right?
2: Uh no question about that. Simply put, if you're an existing GSA schedule contractor, you probably negotiated some specific terms and conditions for yourself and your company that are really important to you. You shouldn't just automatically click on the mass mod, whether it comes out in January or February or whenever it comes out, because you're going to be doing away with a lot of the special provisions that you negotiated in and that are important for your company to have.
0: Right, and in commercial item contracting, that's exactly what's supposed to be kind of allowed, the ability to tailor terms and conditions. So companies – that's a great point, Larry. Companies need to be cognizant of that and make sure they don't, don't you know, undermine their own – you know, operating uh, contract language that supports the ability to to be in the federal market, at least through the schedules program. Do you think this will help? We got about a minute left. Do you think this will help with the ability to provide solutions? I mean, we hear that a lot from GSA.
2: Well, I think that'll make it easier for uh, buyers to buy multifaceted solutions. They're not going to have to know what schedule to go to. It's going to be the program. And, Uh, Theoretically, again, we'll have to see how it works in practice, but theoretically easier to offer multifaceted solutions and to really potentially, Roger, be more competitive if buyers allow for companies to propose functional uh, outcome-based proposals rather than saying, uh, I want this to just be a specified acquisition for a certain slice of it. Uh, Open it up. Let's see what industry can do and and how uh, innovative they can be.
0: Right. So we have to take our break. When we come back, uh, I just want to ask you an additional sort of systems question about eBuy and how that fits into this modernization effort and what can be done in that area. My guest today is Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners. And uh, Larry when I took the break. I mentioned eBuy. Uh, first of all, what is eBuy for our listeners, and uh,
2: how does that fit into the modernization or not in the modernization effort? <laughs> right. Uh, Roger, eBuy is GSA's online RFQ system where agencies can post their needs and send RFQs electronically to schedule contractors to bid on, electronic bidding, electronic award notification system, eBuy is very popular, uh, and justifiably so. How it's going to mesh with the schedule's modernization effort right now I think is is unevenly, to be uh, fair. Uh, we talked in the last segment about GSA realigning The schedules along NAICS codes, North American Industrial Classification System codes, rather than their own homegrown special item numbers. Uh, Right away, uh, if you're using eBuy as a customer, uh, that syntax – we're going to be caught between the syntaxonomy and the transition to NAICS codes. Yes. It's not going to be overnight. GSA has admitted as such. How a buyer is going to be able to find the contractors that it wants uh, to bid on something is going to be a little bit more of a challenge. Essentially, they're going to – everybody, I think, is going to have to hold on to the SIN structure that exists today for some period of time if you're going to get something uh, used on eBuy. And look, we're talking about the end of the fiscal year when eBuy is heavily used, and both GSA – and its contractors, not to mention the customers, would like to use eBuy, particularly at the end of the year. So you're going to have to have some crosswalk or some dual purpose. I think that might be a good approach. We're going to use for this period of time, we're going to use SINs and NAICS codes. Right,
0: or I'm going to provide notice to everybody who's on IT Schedule seventy or something.
2: Right, something where the fair notice is instead of going to – a specific special item number or NAICS codes, you post the opportunity for everybody on that schedule to see. Uh, that would be another way to address it.
0: Right. Or I think JSA's talked talking about creating categories. I guess that would be NAICS code-based perhaps.
2: NAICS code-based categories. I think for the next fiscal year, hopefully they'll have that uh, up and running. But for this fiscal year, they're probably going to need to have some sort of crosswalk or a side-by-side dual capability. So this is a
0: sort of exciting time, GSA, the schedule's modernization effort on the contracting side. Um, You know, I think you've rightly pointed out the systems need to keep pace with the changes in the contracts. And, you know, in GSA sort of building on, you know, there's been a couple studies that have shown that GSA schedule pricing is very, very good as opposed to out there in the commercial marketplace. Um, so they have some momentum here t- towards this thing. What are some of the things – first, do you have any comment on the pricing issue? Um, and secondly, what are some of the other areas where you think GSA needs to focus on, whether it's training or you know just how they approach it from a management perspective internally?
2: I, I think, Roger, I think the pricing issue is a fair one. Uh, certainly uh, for all of the guff that GSA schedule prices have gotten over the years – Studies like the one that your coalition did and others have done, frankly, Navy Postgraduate School, showing that scheduled prices are better than what you can get on commercial e-commerce platforms are really eye-opening and should be to federal buyers. Look, the same Congress that told you to use an e-commerce platform did not envision that in doing so you would be spending more taxpayer dollars than you needed to. Everybody needs to be aware of that. Right, and Um, there's
0: some misconceptions pushing the whole concept that the prices weren't that good. And it turns out they are.
2: And that same Congress that gave you the authority can pull it back and pull you up to go talk to them if they think you are misspending taxpayer dollars. That's the cautionary tale. In terms of what GSA could do or should do, Roger, there's a time now that could not be more ripe for recreating what used to be known as the Expo – uh, I call it the NEXPO because you're not going to use it. Well, uh, we that, could
0: call it the GSA Training Conference. The GSA so.
2: Training Conference. So you need to come up with a catchy acronym uh, for that. Maybe that could be a contest that we hold for your listeners. So uh, whether whatever you call it, Roger, the fact is that with schedules consolidation, with e-commerce, with the substantial growth of the things that are available through the schedules program – Things that didn't exist the last time you had a training conference, satellite services, cloud-based solutions, just to name a couple. Uh, The substantial growth in the Alliant2 program, the OASIS program, neither of which existed the last time that GSA had a training conference. Uh, You have tons of new contractors. You have tons of new customers. You've got to reinstitute your training conference. Uh, You're not doing yourselves a favor. In fact, you're doing your customers a disservice uh, by not having uh, in-person training. Look, GSA, to its credit, has really stepped up online training. Yes, they have. For both customers and contractors, and good for them. But this is still a relationship-driven business, Roger. Nothing succeeds like having people together in the same place. A couple of years ago, I went down to GSA's mini-training conference in Huntsville, Alabama, Roger, you couldn't even hardly get in the training rooms. They were sold I, I out. I
0: remember that. I was there as well. And
2: there. they were sold out, and that just sold out in two years in a row. And that was a testament to just how much it's wanted and how much it's needed and how much in training, in-person training really makes sure that you do it. Look, we all know that if we're sent a training module by our companies and given a certain date to complete it by, some of us will do it, some of us, won't frankly get around to it unless uh, we're forced to. But so
0: most will click on the page saying, I looked at page. I looked page, at this, right, <laughs>
2: exactly. Uh, but if you're knowing that you're going to a special purpose training event in a specific place, you're going to go, you're going to pay attention, you're going to get much more benefit from the training. If GSA wants to keep its forward momentum, if it wants customers to continue to use the programs they offer, and Roger, use them properly, they have to reinstitute their training program, their training session and do it on an annual basis the way they used to. Um,
0: along those lines, you have thoughts on, you know, from an internal perspective in terms of the management. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more about, you know, a training uh, training event that's annual, that's big, that sort of culminates, you know, the training efforts that go on day in and day out that GSA does, that that in-person training is invaluable. Um, just from a – got about a minute left, Larry. Just any thoughts on the management challenge of trying to get everybody on the same page with the, uh, the, the multiple award schedule?
2: Well, Roger, my point there is that GSA does a commendable job talking to industry on what schedules consolidation means from an industry perspective – Uh, and they probably do the same thing for their customers. They need to make sure they put the same level of effort and time to educating their internal acquisition workforce. History has shown that sometimes that part of the stool, that three-legged stool, doesn't get the attention it deserves, and as such, transitions aren't as smooth as they could be. GSA knows what it wants to do with schedules consolidation. They should start training their acquisition workforce on it now. Right.
0: Larry, that's a great point to end the show. I want to thank my guest today, Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network.
1: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.